Thank you for joining me today. This is Colin Hamilton, Commodities Analyst at BMO Capital Markets. And welcome to our short Metals Matters podcast where we highlight the key things you need to know in global metals and mining this week. This week has seen the long-awaited Q2 Politburo meeting in China and mid-year economic review. While it was typically light on detail, I'd say the post-meeting release on Xinhua read a little more pro-growth than had been expected, with some important policy pivots. For the first time, we saw formal acknowledgement that the economic recovery in China was running out of steam, with a promise of stronger counter-cyclical measures and to do more to boost end consumer demand. There was, however, no big bazooka in terms of liquidity injection. Rather, I'd say the emphasis was put firmly on broadening the approach to project funding and mobilising that wider China savings machine, which includes private investors and SOEs, to invest in projects which are deemed for the wider national benefit. Uh, the cynics out there might say that behind that, there's the implicit threat of nationalisation of private credit if it isn't being put to use. Now, in the key property sector, it does look like the path is being cleared for further removal of purchase restrictions and accelerating conversion of existing units to social housing. Accompanying this, I'd also note the shout-outs that were given to boosting furniture and home appliance demand by the Politburo. While all this is positive for completions, I'd also note it doesn't point to any pickup in property new starts into 2024. Thus, I view the meeting as negative relative to expectations for steel and iron ore, but more positive for areas such as stainless steel and perhaps the commodity chemicals. Meanwhile, the plans to boost debt to equity swaps to remove some of the shackles from local governments, well, that should be infrastructure positive. The past couple of weeks have seen a couple of important industry reports released in the critical mineral space. Firstly, the International Energy Agency published its inaugural and detailed Critical Minerals Market Review, which analyzes the latest demand trends, investment and supply chains across critical minerals. As a full caveat, we did contribute some guidance to this document. Indeed, BMO was the only bank to do so, which in my view reflects our leadership in this area. Now, the IEA report highlights the likely supply chain bottlenecks that could slow the pace of the energy transition while also looking at how recent government incentives and the broader push towards resource security has already impacted investment across the critical mineral value chains. Indeed, in the metals and mining companies it considers, capital expenditure in critical minerals rose 30% year-on-year in 2022, surpassing $40 billion for the first time. I note, however, much of this is in lithium investment, where we are definitely seeing a supply response with China's spodumene imports up 55% year-on-year in the second quarter. A key takeaway from the document from my point of view, however, is that supply chain diversification is still a problem. The market share of the top three producing nations by commodity has either remained unchanged or, in the case of, let's say, nickel and cobalt, increased. Concentrated supply risk remains most acute in downstream processing, with little sign of a significant distribution shift based on planned projects. China represents half of planned lithium chemical facilities, while Indonesia accounts for roughly 90% of planned nickel refineries. As I've highlighted in the past, the emphasis 
on building energy transition supply chains is still primarily focused on constructing new gigafactories or solar panel plants, but progress in the extractive industries has failed to keep pace. Also, a report come out from the Energy Transitions Commission, the ETC, a, a global coalition of leaders from across the energy landscape. Now, under its maximum demand scenario, in the absence of marked technological innovation or greater recycling, ETC sees potential supply shortfalls by 2030 in graphite, cobalt, neodymium, copper, lithium and nickel. Now, it's interesting, but in both these reports, there's this view of there being sufficient existing mineral resources identified to meet the future demand needs through to 2050. This is true under a scenario of unconstrained supply, but we have to expect that some thrifting and some substitution will be required. We are in a supply-constrained environment. And if you're a purchasing manager for a fuel-to-materials transition-focused company, and you're not looking at various options around material use given the expected supply constraints, well, you're probably not doing your job. I've received a surprisingly large number of queries on Mick Cole in recent times, so I thought I'd reiterate our views in this area. In terms of a big picture perspective, it's unique in a number of ways. The largest seaborne suppliers are developed world countries, Australia, US and Canada, in that order, with the marginal buyers being the emerging markets. And if you look at supply concentration, well, Queensland alone is responsible for 50% of seaborne supply. So with that, you have this concentrated geographical risk. On the demand side, well, Europe, Brazil, Japan, Korea have no domestic coke and coal supply, and India has very little. China is highly self-sufficient, but with China's blast furnace output so dominant in global terms, a small shift in China's net trade position can have a huge impact on global market dynamics. Given the pushback on funding coal assets, supply growth is naturally limited, with existing assets also now showing the signs of age in many cases. Yet, on the demand side, if we look at it, the likely declines in blast furnace output from many regions will see lower import needs. Met coal is not a gross story. I'd say the biggest shift in the market over 2023 to date is China's increasing reliance on overland coal from Mongolia and Russia. These countries are making up the vast majority of the 60 to 70 million tonne per annum imports we're seeing at present. And supply from Mongolia is only going to grow further. And as a result, we see this as a market where China may very well no longer need much at all from the seaborne market in future years, though arguably this does just free up more material for growth in India and ASEAN. In the near term, there's a couple of points I wanted to highlight. The first is the rising cost curve. We used to quote $150 a tonne as the top end of the seaborne curve, but given cost inflation and new tax regimes, I'd say that for marginal US and Australian suppliers, this is now nearer $175 a tonne. Secondly, the Chinese domestic market has once again hit some form of resistance on the downside at roughly $200 a tonne equivalent for hard coking coal. That's a pretty high price. Now, I wouldn't say too many domestic coal producers in China are losing money at this level, but the merchant coke makers are. They've been trying to push the coke price higher, which has flowed through to make coal, and that's been helped by another round of safety checks in Shangxi. Thus, while we see some downside in iron ore and potentially thermal coal prices over the next month, spot met coal may end up being relatively resilient. 
finally this week, I feel like I have to talk about everyone's favourite subject, the weather. I'm personally just back from a week in Malta where the temperature during the day was about 40 degrees centigrade. Way too hot for a Scotsman like myself. I was very happy to come back to the refreshing London rain. But it's hot across much of the Northern Hemisphere and July is well on course to be the hottest month ever recorded. So the World Meteorological Organization has announced the start of an El Nino event, a periodic warming in sea surface temperature and atmospheric pressure, which is likely to further strengthen as the year progresses. And weather events, of course, do typically have some impacts on commodity markets in terms of supply and demand. But unlike La Nina, which is highly correlated with cross-commodity supply problems and rising prices in commodities, it's hard to draw any definitive trends from El Nino events. Australia, well, should see lower than average summer rainfall in Q1 next year, hence the typical Q1 iron ore and coal supply disruption may be reduced. The same is true of northern Brazil, where iron ore volumes should have a better platform to improve over those levels seen in recent years. Nearer term, I'd expect some increased rainfall in southern China, which could amplify the usual seasonal downturn in construction activity. In northern China, as we head to winter, it increases the potential for haze, which could see a return of the winter cuts in steel, aluminium, maybe ferroalloys. Overall net-net, I'd say El Nino has a slight negative impact on metals of bulk commodity prices or other things being equal. Thank you for listening to Metal Matters. We're here to inform, so any topics you'd like to see covered, do just let me know and please join me again soon to discuss yet more pertinent issues in these ever-changing global metals and bulk commodity markets. That was Metal Matters, presented by BMO Capital Markets Equity Research. You can subscribe to Metal Matters on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers or visit our website at researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com to listen to more episodes, including our other podcast series, BMO Equity Research in Tune. If you have feedback or suggestions for upcoming podcasts, please do share it with me at colin.hamilton.com at bimo.com To access our full disclosures please visit researchglobalzero.bimocapitalmarkets.com forward slash public hyphen disclosure